If, like me, you're of a certain age, and most of you are, you may have watched live the first moon landings over 50 years ago. You may remember Apollo 11 and the lunar module tentatively descending onto the surface of the moon. Now, if you're not of a certain age, don't feel hard done by, just be thankful. We were glued to our grainy black and white television screens, watching almost inconceivable events happen before our eyes. And I can remember watching it, and one fact has stuck with me all these years. There was one insignificant detail from this which struck me and has never left me, and it was this, that the eagle, which was the lunar probe which left the capsule they were in and went down onto the surface of the, the moon, it had no seats in it. And I couldn't understand this. You had Armstrong and Aldrin, a pilot and a co-pilot, but they had no seats. Now, it was partly to save weight that they didn't put seats in, but it was also because they were largely weightless, so they didn't need them. And here, on Earth, after a hard day's work, constrained by gravity, there's nothing better that we like than to sit down and have a good cup of tea. So I have a paradigm that if somebody is piloting a vehicle, they have to have a seat. The bus driver has to have a seat, the car driver has to have a seat, the pilot has to have a seat. And gravity plays such an important part in our lives that I couldn't imagine life without it. But life does exist without it, and astronauts have found out that you can, in a fashion, live in space without gravity. But it changes everything. Apparently, it even changes the toilets. But why talk about gravity when our subject tonight is about living simply? Why is it that this pervasive force of gravity that we rarely give a second thought is so important? Because you see, our lives are subject to gravity every moment, every second of the day. But there's another concept, there's another concept which we are subject to which we don't really think about. But it emanates from inside rather than outside. And it's the reason for much of what we do. It's why we lock our doors on our house. It's why we've got an army. It's why we save into pension funds. It's why we have PIN numbers to protect our bank accounts. What is it? It's the concept of security. Security. Security is everywhere. Security is why we lock our houses. Security is why um, we have armed forces to protect us from invaders. Security is why our bank always asks us for our password and our PIN number. Because without security, we feel vulnerable. We feel things will get taken. We feel defenseless, exposed, weak. And the question that the passage today in 1 Timothy 6 poses us is, where is our security? The world answers that by saying, your, your, you, your security comes through accumulating things. But it's not what God says. 
You see, in themselves, there's nothing wrong with possessions and assets. But what can become wrong is the way that we view them and use them. Is our security in God or is our security in the things that we have? I wonder if you've ever played the game of opposites. Perhaps you've played that. If you've got grandchildren, it's the sort of thing that you try and entertain them with as they sit in the back seat stuck in a traffic jam. We've done that. Hot, cold, high, low. You give one, they give the other. We're playing this the other day and one of my granddaughters said, Grandpa, what's the opposite of down end? (laughs) And the answer was upstart. Down, up, end, start. Down, end, upstart. But what is the opposite of godliness? Now, if we're very clever, we would say, ah, well, the opposite of godliness is ungodliness. But when we look at scripture, the answer is is often given as worldliness. The opposite of godliness as being worldliness. And that's somewhere about where our affections and where our hearts go. And it's a point that Paul is making to Timothy in this reading today. He starts, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So do you see this juxtaposition that Paul has? He's got godliness on one side, and the other side of the balance seems to be wealth, money, Wealth is not a sin. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy, but wealth, when it becomes a temptation, leads to sin. And that's why Paul is pretty strong and stark in the second part of this reading, and he gives a series of commands. I don't know when the last time you gave a command to somebody. It's not something we do very lightly. It's a strong thing to do. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Problem with wealth, it becomes a false security. We don't need to trust God because we can look after ourselves. And the temptation is that God begins just to disappear over the horizon because we are content and secure in ourselves. I think most of us have probably got beyond the point of fighting with God Most of us, I think, would feel that we are largely at peace with God. But the enemy wants to block us from going to God. 
And he wants, like a, like a boat that's set adrift because its anchor has gone, he wants us just to drift away from God so that God disappears over the horizon. And that's what wealth can get, do. It can give us a false sense of security and self-sufficiency. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, don't put your hope in wealth. It's a false security. It doesn't last, and it steals away your heart. Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying that wealth can draw our affections. And as it does so, it becomes our idol. We start to worship it. We look at it, we think about it, we take pride in it, we depend on it. And it becomes the focus almost of worship. And what is the very first commandment that God gives us? You shall have no other gods before me. So what Paul is warning us is that wealth can take the place of God in our hearts. It becomes the focus of our worship and it becomes the source of our security. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The temptation of wealth distracts us from God. And it was found in that verse from Proverbs that we read earlier on. Did you notice that? Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? So here is the great temptation. That God disappears from our sight and we begin to disown him. It's one of the saddest things to see a person who was once close to God, now distant, ambivalent, giving him no thought, thinking only of the things of the world. So the warning is clear. We yearn for security, but putting our security in anything other than God is short-sighted. You know, it takes real courage and determination to resist temptation and take that easy route to security. And I just want to share a little from two people I know, two people's lives who in different ways have taken risks with their security. One of them's name is Gary and the other one's name is Greg. And it might possibly be, but by the time I've shared their story with you, you might know either or both of them, or have heard of them. Gary set up a toy shop in 1981 in Amersham, in Buckinghamshire, with his wife, Kath. They'd never run a business before, so it was quite an undertaking to set up a shop from scratch. But as Christians, they wanted to make sure that they honoured the Lord 
in their business. So they, right from the outset, they thought about the principles that they would have which would govern this new business. And of the principles they came up with, one of them was that they would honour the fourth commandment, that they would keep the Lord's Day holy, so they would never open their shop on a Sunday. And the second principle, or another principle was, they determined that they wouldn't sell anything that was um, from the occult or that did not worship, was not honouring to God. And when you're opening a small shop, that's quite an easy undertaking to make. Until along comes Harry Potter, who becomes the biggest selling commodity for children. But they stayed and stuck with their principles, so they wouldn't stock and sell Harry Potter. God came higher on their priority list than increasing their profitability. And they remembered the words that God spoke in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 30, those who honour me, I will honour. And Gary is Gary Grant and his wife Kath, and they run the entertainer group of children's toy shops. And it's the biggest and most successful toy retailer in the UK. They have 163 stores and they have a turnover of over 150 million pounds. They took risks with their business to honour God and God has honoured them. Their security was not in market forces but in the faithfulness of God. And let me tell you about Greg. Greg who always used to say to me we should take risks for God. We should take risks for God. Greg was a member of the church I was in when I was growing up, and uh, he was a few years older than me. And he was a byproduct of the 1960s. He, was a, he played guitar in a rock band. And uh, at that stage, he wasn't a Christian, but he had some Christian friends. And some of these Christian friends came to one of the gigs he was playing in one night. And in the early hours of the morning, he says it was about four o'clock in the morning, one of his Christian friends left him with the words, well, Greg, what are you going to do about Jesus? I don't know if you've ever said that to anybody. That's what one of his friends said to him. Next morning, Greg had to um, go on a journey, and he got up early to go to the station to catch a train. And as he walked along, um, just getting to the station, a piece of paper fluttered around um, in the wind, and he caught the title of this bit of paper. It was a, a flyer flying in the wind. And the flyer said on it, what are you going to do about Jesus? Cut a long story short, he gave his life to Christ and uh, he was a became a teacher. And I can remember him sitting around our dining room table saying, I'm sure God wants us to take risks for him. And true to his convictions, he quit his job and he went to Paraguay to serve God. So what did become of this risk taker? This man who was going to give up everything and follow God. Well, today he's the Archbishop of South America, Greg Venables. And he's a personal friend of Pope Francis because they were the primates of South America together, the Catholic and the Protestant archbishops. They regularly text each other. You know, you never know what might happen when you take a risk for God, when you take a risk with your security. 
And we've read that Jesus said, don't build up treasure on earth where burglars come in and steal. And where Greg lives, he lives in an environment frequented by gangs and thugs and thieves. And not long ago, Greg and his wife Sylvia came face to face with a group of thieves in their house. And Sylvia shouted at them and she said, the stuff you're taking, it's not our stuff, it's God's stuff. But on his behalf, I give it to you anyway. And the uh, intruders were rather taken aback. And after some discussion, they ended up saying, can we ask you two questions? And the first question is, will you forgive us? And Greg said, yes, if you give, you, give us our stuff back. <laughs> and the second was, how do we get out? And Greg said, well, you'll need this key because the compound is padlocked and only if you use this key to get through the padlock will you get out. So they took the key and they undid the padlock on the compound and then they brought the padlock and the key back and gave it to Greg. You know, God does funny things in honouring his word. And when we take risks and step out in faith, sometimes we jeopardise our security. We make ourselves vulnerable by stepping out in faith for God. You know, I imagine that Greg and Sylvia could quite easily be one of the murder statistics of South America. But God is their security. Gary took risks with his toy shop. He owns it. If he'd have been a public company, the investors wouldn't have been very impressed at his business approach. But God became his security. And do you remember, Jesus gave the rich young ruler that very same opportunity. Risk your security and discover the eternal security and blessing of God. But the rich young ruler turned away, sad, because he loved his wealth. I wonder what risks we're prepared to take for God. I wonder how willing we are to put our security on the line in some way that we might honour him. Are we holding on to something too tightly as a security that actually that grasp should be onto God? not onto those things. What is it we're holding on to? Is it our emotional safety that we won't let others in? Is it our things that we won't share in case they get lost or damaged or misused? Is it our funds that we hold on to so tightly because we don't know what we would do without them? Jesus gently wants us to release our grip on the things in which we place our security. And he wants us instead to take his hand, to take those risks with him, and to learn that he is faithful to his promise. Those Apollo astronauts didn't need seats because they were operating outside the laws of gravity. 
If we take Jesus by the hand, we will start living outside the laws of security. And when we do that, we will learn that he is all we need. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your unfailing word. We thank you that your promise to us is unfailing. Lord, we know that you will never let us down. We're just so sorry that we do not put our trust in you as we should. Our heads know all about it but somehow our hearts refuse to believe. Lord, touch our hearts that we may be changed, that we may come to know that our true and eternal security is in Christ alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.